Hi, my name is Isaac, lead pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. Well, in the seat back of the, in front of you, if you're on the front row, it's probably on your seat. There's a teaching handout booklet that you can follow along with. This will help you as we are in week three of our three-week series <coughs> um, called Basecamp. Um, yeah, and Basecamp is um, uh, three weeks at the base of the mountain, so to speak, before we ascend the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' definitive sermon. And uh, these three weeks are critical for us as we um, ascend the mountain, and we're getting there. And uh, <clears throat> so... Uh, couple of thoughts about that, just in terms of how this is going to work. Yeah, so here we are. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, we're going to go through that. These three weeks are really important for us to understand how we are going to go about interpreting. If you have missed a week, um, I would encourage you to go back online to inewhope.org forward slash sermons and listen to Basecamp so you have an interpretive framework with us, a point of view as we are um, walking through this. Um, so, yeah, and actually all of us next week will begin really digging in. Um, it's probably good for us to go back and listen and be reminded and review. Um, yeah, I think it's important. So thanks for uh, following uh, along with that. Uh, so this morning we will study the opening lines of the sermon as a part of our base camp preparation and uh, these opening lines are called the Beatitudes, and you may have heard of the Beatitudes, you've, you've read them. We tend to like, see them as like, like sweet Hallmark card greetings. We'll find that they're actually incredibly surprising. Um, Don and I got a surprise recently. Some surprises are good. Not the story I'm going to tell you, but some surprises are good, <laughs> apparently. We were on a walk, and we're like praying, you know, being spiritual, and just like, you know, just contending for some things that we're praying through. And I, and I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this white cat. You know, sometimes like white cats have like red around their eyes and they just look evil, you know? So we'll call this, this cat Satan. That's what we'll call Satan. Yeah. And he was crouching and then leapt out at Donya's head as she was like praying. So she didn't see him until he leapt out. Like, you know how cats do that thing with their, and they're going to like, you know, they do the thing. <laughs> and then like mid air, I, I think the Holy Spirit just redirected and like it did one of those contortion things and like fell to the ground and didn't, didn't actually get Donya. And we were like surprised, like shocked, you know, like, whoa, what, what just happened? This evil Satan cat thing. I like cats, though, myself. I'm, are you a cat person? Yeah, some of you are. I, I learned this the other day. Dogs have owners. Cats have a staff. Yeah. That's a good one. I didn't make that up, but it's really true. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jesus in his opening lines is going to surprise us. And I don't think he intends to, like, shock us, like, shock value, <laughs> you know, not like that, but, but it's surprising how he'll open his teaching on human flourishing. Um, the opening 
lines of stories or movies or the opening music is important. It kind of sets a tone. So I'm going to see if any of you recognize this. This is one of my favorites. Dun, 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 dun. What is it? Downton Abbey. Any Downton fans out there? Yeah. Yeah, I love Downton. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just so, like, sweet. And Anyway. <clears throat> Did I lose most of you? <laughs> yeah. How about this? You recognize this? Just shout it out if you recognize it. What is it? Yeah, Barry Mason. Yeah. <clears throat> there are some famous first lines of like novels um, that we, let's see if you recognize this. There'll be a little countdown here. Just shout it out. Um, actually, this is a TV show. Space, the final frontier. What is it? That's what I hear. Yeah. Ah, Star Trek. Okay. Frames first lines. It gets a little, a little bit more difficult. You guys may be doing better than the first service so far. We'll see. Okay. Here's, here's the next one. Let's see if you can get this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. What is it? Voyage of the Dawn Shredder by C.S. Lewis. I love that line. It's a horrible name. I know. It's one of my, the great literary lines of all time. And he almost deserved it. Sets a tone, though, if you want to read that story. Eustace, almost deserving that name, is a big part of the story. Okay, what do we got next? Oh, you should be able to get this one. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. First line of the novel. What is it? The hobbit, yes. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's the hobbit. Okay, we're helping people here. You, you went to school this morning. That's, that's, yeah, okay. I think I have another one or so. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was a tale of two cities. Who wrote it? Charles Dickens. All right. I'm going to give you guys grace because he's not an American. So that's, okay. Now this one, this is, I, I think, oh, I'm going to skip that one. Let's see. I want to get to this one. He was born with a gift of laughter and a sense the world was mad. That's the biography of Chris Bowlby right there. Yeah. So, Chris, if you're watching at home, Chris is sick this morning. I was so excited for him to, to hear that. If you're new to us, Chris is our associate pastor, and he's one of the funniest guys that I have ever met. And uh, yeah, my name means laughter, and he's funnier than me. So like he is, yeah, that was kind of funny, right? Yeah. The, these opening lines, they, <laughs> they set a tone. We're, we're drawn in. Um, there was a line of an opening book that I came across that I thought, this is like how I begin my, my sermons. It says, I begin with writing the first sentence and trusting to Almighty God for the second. <laughs> That's how he started the novel. Uh, it's like all my sermons right there, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so here, this last one is an opening line to a story that I'll tell you at the end. It's like a teaser. You like that? I began to notice the smell of alcohol. Draws you in, doesn't it? Okay, we'll come back to that. 
Today, we are looking at the opening lines of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we will see that his opening lines are calling his people to a weak posture. We'll be surprised. A discerning or pure author intends that his writing is to introduce his readers to a particular trajectory. And the gospel writer Matthew is doing that. He is a gospel writer, and the gospels are the, the, the story, the account, the narrative of Jesus' life. Jonathan Pennington writes about this, that he says, the gospels are more than biographies. They're certainly more than this, but they are not less. And the protagonist, the main character of the gospel stories, Jesus, is clearly depicted as one to follow, not just to observe or to be grateful for his work, but to follow. There is a trajectory, an invitation to follow him. So Matthew is writing this, and he is already, by the time we get to chapter 5, providing a visceral, countercultural way that we discerning readers, are invited into. Matthew is writing intentionally and invites us to be like Jesus, to emulate him, to become like Jesus. And in this account already, before, before chapter 5, we learn of Jesus being born, and immediately the powers of the world are put on high alert. Herod being told that a new king was being born by the wise men from the east, a story at Christmas, tries to seek out and kill this newborn king. And so we see right, at, right away in the narrative that the incoming of God into the world is going to shake the powers of the world, is going to threaten the established systems, that it's going to be dramatic, that there's a clash of powers that are taking place. We see immediately in the story that suffering, persecution is going, to be ha- is going to happen when God incarnates himself in the world. Then Matthew, last week we reflected on this in chapter 4, he reflects on the devil coming to tempt Jesus. And we learn quickly that following the way of Jesus is unlike anything that we've known. And now Matthew continuing his purposeful composition, begins the account of the Sermon on the Mount with nine sayings, we call them Beatitudes, told by Jesus. And the Beatitudes will summarize the themes that the narrative of Matthew is weaving, but also, and more importantly, the Beatitudes, they describe postures that Jesus envisions us needing to adopt or embrace as a means to flourishing. These postures. These postures, when we're in them, we can achieve something or we can experience something. It's like, have you ever tried to fall asleep standing up? (laughs) It's really hard, isn't it? It is hard because you're not in the correct posture. But like right now, some of you are in the, the perfect posture to fall asleep. You are already. You're just, you're, just, you're just nodding. You're just nodding off. You know, it's a cold fall, wintry day. Yeah, Carl is nodding off. Yeah. When we get into the right posture, we can experience something. Jesus has a vision that we are going to flourish. And the Beatitudes describe these postures in which we can begin to experience 
what he has for us. So we'll discover that following the commands of the Sermon on the Mount are not just like a list of rules or don't or do, but rather these commands take us back to these postures that the Beatitudes describe for us. And in those postures, we begin to flourish. Flourishing. Now, the devil has a different plan. We outlined this more robustly last week. But it's good for us as we talk about flourishing that Stan the liar, as we called him last week, if you take one letter out of Satan's name, it's Stan. And the devil poses as an angel of light. And so, you know, we are not going to be influenced by the, the horned, hairy, you know, red-faced, you know, pointed tail, you know, gnarly-sounding guy. We won't be influenced by that, but by the angel of light, which is more like Stan the liar, we will be. Sounds great. He has a program of human flourishing in mind. He has a temptation, a way that most of humanity has lived throughout history that keeps people exactly where he wants them, promised flourishing, but ultimately absolutely suffering. Giving in to the temptation of the devil is how it, most people think I, we arrive at human flourishing. So in, these temptations are clearly outlined in Matthew 4. Last week we went over this, but just in, in review. This is the devil's plan. Make your own life happen on your power. Be a bread maker. Satan says, turn these stones into bread. Do it yourself. Here's the lie. Once I do, once I'm providing for myself and I'm, I'm at the center and I can, I, I can care for myself just fine, I'm independent enough, I don't need anybody else, then I will be flourishing. But living according to your own strength means that you are enslaved to your own strength. And, and this is obvious for us. Living according to your own strength means that you are enslaved by your own strength. One thing happens in life that shows us that we're really not on the throne of life and everything crumbles. But Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen. We are not called to be our own bread maker, but to be in dependence before him. But Satan, that's his plan. <clears throat> the next thing, the next temptation, be effective by being impressive. <laughs> this is where Satan you know, said, hey, go up on the temple mount, hurl yourself down. The angels will catch you. The scripture said that they will. What is he buying into? He, or he's trying to tempt that you need to be impressive in front of everybody else, and then all of your good plans will be able to come out once you're really impressive, Jesus. The lie is that once I have gathered a big enough following or crowd, then I can be effective, we can be effective, and then there will be rest. But here's the light. We have to be impressive over and over and over and over again. And if you notice how once one impressive thing happens, we want more impressive things to happen. It's got to be bigger, better, kind of gets you know, out of vogue. Have you noticed like the marketing campaigns of our world that we're living in? It's always bigger and better. It's more impressive. This is the way the enemy's wanting us to think, that it's always chasing the carrot out in front of us. More impressive. This is the way he wants us to get into this mindset but we, once we are, we have to produce results again and again and again to flourish. 
But Jesus says, no, we don't need to test the Lord our God. The devil's plan for our flourishing, the third thing, is you need to align yourself with the right power in the world. You have to align yourself with the, with the kingdoms of this world. Satan took Jesus and he said, I will give you all authority of all the kingdoms of this earth if you will bow to me. The temptation is, the lie is that fame, money, political power, positional influence are neutral. These powers are out here. Jesus, you can be governor, you can be president, you can be king, you can be general, you can be captain, you can be in charge. And once you are, you'll be able to use those powers to your goal. And the lie is that these powers are neutral, just waiting, just being used. However, if it's good people using them, then they're for good. If it's bad people using them, then they go bad. But the scriptures talk about these powers that have a volition of their own. Jesus, when given these powers, I'll give them to you. He said no, because he knew that those powers are the devil's playground. And they have a volition. And they will take us farther than we ever thought that we would go. Because once you're playing with the powers of the world, you're taken on a path to destruction. For example, one of them that is commonly believed is that fame is a, is a neutral power. If you're famous and, and, and you're godly, then that's good. All fame subverts the glory that belongs to God alone. All fame does. Jesus said no to that. He didn't need that. In the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces us to his way of flourishing through weakness. Well, Isaac, I'd, I'd really like for you to now tell me the program that we can become strong. And then I would turn to God the Father and I said, would you, would you tell him? And God would say, let me tell you my plan. Well, yes, you will send your son into the world. We've all seen Thor. And God would say, no. I'm going to send my son as a vulnerable baby. Vulnerable baby. He won't be able to protect himself. He'll be born in a stable among the animals to a poor family that is now enduring scrutiny because it looks like a scandal. And then immediately, my son will take refuge in the enemy of Israel in Egypt and become a refugee. My son will have to flee. And then my son, I'm, I'm going to have him be raised in Jerusalem. No, in Rome. That would be better. No, no, wait. He'll be raised in Nazareth. Where? Exactly. He'll be raised in, in Nazareth. He'll be a, a poor carpenter, and he'll, he'll be a, a nobody in a nowhere town. And then at 30 years of age, aha, 
what, he'll become centurion and then captain, and then maybe a Roman general. Will he do that? Will he cross over? No, no, wait. My son will gather a team. Oh, yes, the rich, the powerful. Maybe he will, will convince some of those Roman powerful people. No, 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 wait, <laughs> just listen. I'll send my son to gather other poor people, people who also have lived in scandal. I'll gather them around my son, and he will teach them this way of humility and service. That's how I'm going to do it. Ah, and then they will, they will gain a following. Like, would you call that like a groundswell political movement? No. No, actually, he'll get the crowds, but eventually there'll only be a few that follow him, and then finally it's only going to be his mother and a few women who will be around him. When he's sent to the cross, before the most powerful figure in the world, he will not utter a word in his own defense, even though he's unjustly accused. And my son will hang on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of the whole world. And then he will be put in a grave, and it will seem like all hope was lost. Well, yes, all hope was lost. That's a horrible plan. But then on the third day, some women, why do you keep using women? <laughs> some women will discover that the tomb is empty. And then my son, Jesus, will appear to them. And he will say, shh, tell the other disciples. And then we're going to change the world. And we're not going to use the things that my son never used. We're not going to use power. We're not going to use fame. We're not going to use violence. We're not going to use those things. We're going to use the means that I have put into my son and then his spirit, which is in every one of you followers. That's how we're going to change the world. And to you, it's going to look like weakness, but it's strength in the economy of my kingdom that I am establishing on earth as it already is where I live and reign, God says. We are being introduced to this, where the true power is. And it's different than anything we've ever seen. Paul learns it later. Paul was one of those ones in the powerful position as a Pharisee. The power of his mind, of knowledge, of moral uprightness and character. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, he described himself. And then this weak, suffering, crucified and risen Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and everything changed for Paul. And he learned that it is the way of weakness. He says in Philippians, he counts all of that power stuff as loss compared to the precious value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he writes, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he's, he's reflecting on his persecutions and his struggles, and he says, and Jesus said to me, this is what Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast about my infirmities that doesn't what? <laughs> that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Marvadon and some other theologians make a strong case that this phrase, translating from Greek into the English, this phrase, my strength is made perfect, is a, is a misunderstanding. That in the Greek, it's a little bit hard for us, but the Greek word there is teleos, or teleosis, which means to make complete or to bring to an end. And she, as she describes the context of Paul's words and what he is writing as he writes the rest of the way, she says that the more accurate translation is that my strength, Paul is referring to his own strength, that Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, and then, end quote, and then Paul writes, for my strength is brought to an end in weakness, so that Christ may be made strong. That there's something about us in our weakness where Christ is made strong. And that interpretation, which if we read it all together now, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, end quote, for, Paul says, my strength is brought to an end in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. This all makes sense. Yeah, because my, my strength is brought to an end in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress, because my power is brought to an end in these weaknesses for Christ's sake. And when I am in this state of weak, then he is made to be strong. There's a theology of weakness that in a powerful nation like ours has largely been lost because it doesn't jive with the ethos of our culture, which is to be dominating, to be in charge. Jesus is at odds with the way of the world, which is dominated by the powers of the world. And all of these powers are heavily influenced by Stan the liar and his lies and temptations. The Beatitudes will summarize Jesus. And all this, Paul's reflections make sense when we read the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes will summarize and give us shorthand ways of communicating these postures that will lead to flourishing. So this morning, we're going to read them. Next week, we'll reinterpret the word blessed. Your hand out there, the last four pages, I think, or so, we're not going to go through. Move that to next week, because it was um, a lot for today. So we'll read the Beatitudes, and we'll notice how surprising and different they are. Well, Beatitude comes from the Latin word, beautis, which means happy or blissful, um, and so in Latin translations of the Greek, like as a heading would be used, um, and that's where we get the name Beatitude, just so you're aware. <laughs> um, and there are nine phrases that make up the Beatitudes. So we'll read these, and then we'll make some more comment about how surprising they are. All right. When Jesus saw the crowds, so this is the beginning of a sermon, he saw the crowds, they are gathered, he went up to the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's quite an opening. <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, (laughs) for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not the grand opening of like, (laughs) it's going to be great. No one talks like this. Each of these statements is counter to the way of the world. You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. If you're in mourning, there's, there's there's a happiness about you. The gentle, those who hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst means it's not yet yet satiated or quenched. You're, You're blessed if you're in that state. Blessed are the merciful. Our culture is blessed are those who are able to get, make sure others get what they deserve. He said, no, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Our world doesn't want to think about our hearts and our motives at all. We are more concerned about our outward appearance. And so we would, if we were writing this, we would say, blessed are those who seem like they have it all together, for we are not annoyed by them. <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers. Our world says, blessed are the war makers. Blessed are you when you have been persecuted, when you are insulted. Nobody talks like this. This is so surprising and shocking. Even the more palatable phrases, peacemaker, pure in heart, hungering for righteousness, they are not in the table of contents of stand the liars, how to get the life you want. They don't make it. It's so counter to the way of the world. They seem to be weak-minded statements from some hippie guru. And so we, we, we no, surely, they, surely Jesus was misheard, he was misunderstood, or surely there are teachers who would show us that what Jesus is really doing is rallying us to be this strong force. Show me that teacher and I will show you a heretic who has not wrestled with Scripture who is more concerned about the powers of his culture and his own world than the legitimacy of the true King of kings and Lord of lords, who came so differently than ever any other salvation messianic hero figure throughout history. Some would say, well, that's nice as long as everybody else is keeping the peace so this little hippie commune can live out this way. I I will remind you that this way of Jesus 
in which the Jesus followers had no power, had no position, had no protection, had no army, that this way of Jesus for the first 300 years that the church was living changed radically the whole world. It wasn't just lived out by people who are already protected. It was lived out by people who were opposed and persecuted and who suffered violence rather than return violence. It's audacious. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis has said about Jesus and mere Christianity. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's helpful. What Lewis says is, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. He says, Lewis says, that's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 18 steps for your better life now. No, he would either be a lunatic, and then Lewis says, I didn't put it on here, he says, on the level of, of a man calling himself a poached egg, <laughs> or else he would be a devil of hell. And then Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for being a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Immediately, the reader of Matthew, and we this morning are faced with a choice about Jesus' lordship. He does not establish it here by some amazing sign or miracle, but instead he casts a vision of flourishing life that is so opposite to anything that we've heard or been taught, and so we must immediately decide if we'll trust him as Lord or dismiss him as a lunatic. And from my view, his audacity affirms his lordship because he was not dealing in the powers of the world that everyone else is. He makes no promises or assurances about success or merit, or hierarchy. He does not create some religious program that promises to ease life or to change our circumstances. Jesus was no spiritual huckster who established a crowd by making promises he could not deliver on, but rather he introduced the legitimate, solid, truthful, substantial, firm foundation of his teaching so that we can live in it. At the end of the sermon, he says, blessed is the man, happy is the man who, who hears what I say and puts it into practice. His opening statements do not necessarily assuage our hearts, although we can see hope in them, but rather our hearts are plowed by them. Service Pinkers says this, the Beatitudes, Jesus' words, overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. You've seen the fields as they are broken up so something can be planted 
The Beatitudes come not just as sweet hallmark statements, but as God's, what do you call it, plow? (laughs) I'm looking at the farmers in the room. (laughs) Plow. Intended to till the soil of our heart. And and it's striking just as the plow strikes in our heart so that his seed of real life, abundant life, he calls it in John 10, can be birthed within us. Life in the full comes to those who have a weak posture before the Lord. Next week, we're going to clarify the word bless, which is confusing because there's actually two Greek words that we use one English word for, and they're two very different meanings and context can't help us, but we're going to clarify that. That'll happen next week. It's on your handout. You can bring it back with you. But for this morning, some application. As we go away with the Beatitudes, first of all, Next week, we will hear the whole sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, and I invite you to come and hear. We will also clarify that word, blessed. Also, many of you this week are beginning Financial Hope. This is the last day to sign up for it stewarding our money, Um, and many of you are feeling poor in spirit, as you do, or poor in in the practical, and I I just had a sense this week as I was preparing that God is going to fill you as you are experiencing that, and the humility that comes from saying, I need help doing money God's way, oh, God's going to fill you, and I just encourage you to take that step of vulnerability and trust to be there with him. Another thought for you today, read the Beatitudes this week. Um, If you access it like the scriptures with your phone, you can probably read it in multiple translations, and I encourage you to do that. And sit with that and allow it to both comfort you. Mike, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. That's comfort, but also to challenge us. And finally, another invitation to review the podcast of Basecamp. I would encourage you, even if you've heard them all, to go back and, um, yeah, to go back. Well, I told you that I was going to finish that story that starts with, I began to notice the smell of alcohol. My friend... Tom, (laughs) this isn't Tom, (laughs) this is Kim, and we're going to sing a song for you in just a moment. But my friend Tom came to church, served in our kids' ministry, and we did not know that Tom had a drinking problem. But then I began to notice the smell of alcohol. And I I want you to remember that the kingdom comes to those who are weak. And as I went to confront my friend Tom that I love, do you think I felt strong and confident? No. I felt weak. 
I felt unsure and uncertain. I said, Tom, God has a great plan for your life, and he nodded. And then I said, I need to talk to you about your drinking. And there it is, the vulnerability of that moment. What's going to be true? Is the kingdom real? Is there comfort for him who is now walking in humility? Is there strength for me if I am cursed and reviled because I am hungering and thirsting and contending for righteousness? Tom chose the weak path, chose the path of humility and began getting sober. A year later, he handed me his one-year AA sobriety coin. And now Tom has been sober for over 1,000 days. It's amazing. It's the way of weakness that brings life. You think that this is the first time Tom had thought about his drinking problem? No, but he tried to do it on his own strength. It's in the place of weakness that the kingdom comes. And Kim and I are going to sing a song that I came across this last couple of weeks. And this song... I just wept as I was thinking about the Beatitudes and the place that Jesus wants to lead us to. (laughs) Because the kingdom comes to each of us who are willing to be weak and vulnerable. And this song is one that we are going to sing in coming weeks as we go through the Sermon on the Mount to remind ourselves of these postures and who the kingdom comes to. So this morning, as you learn and would like to sing, the words are on the screen, but would you just reflect on what God might be speaking to you and see how these are wonderful reflections um, on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the ones who do not bury all the broken pieces of their heart. Blessed are the tears of all the weary, pouring like a sky of falling stars. Blessed are the ones in mourning brave enough to show the Lord their scars blessed are the hurts that are not hidden open to the healing touch of God the kingdom is yours the kingdom is yours hold on a little more this is not the end hope is in the lord keep your eyes on Blessed are the ones who walk in kindness, even in 
on the face of great abuse. Blessed are the deeds that go unnoticed, serving with unguarded gratitude. Blessed are the ones who fight for justice. Longing for the coming day of peace Blessed is the soul that thirsts for righteousness Welcoming the last, the lost, the least The kingdom is yours The kingdom is yours is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. The kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord, keep your eyes on Him. Oh, no. No. To suffer violence and still have strength to love their enemies. Blessed is the faith of those who persevere, and though they fall, they'll never know defeat. The kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. The kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Him. Him. 
sing that. The kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. your eyes on 